there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. cinema history there is a great tradition of stories about boxers a lot of them actually focus on the fighters who never quite make it they give a lot to the sport a lot of blood and sweat but if they don't get to where they want to be which is pretty much the top of their game the sport doesn't really give them anything back So this was very fertile ground for Rod Serling with his talent for finding poetry in things or situations. Now Serling knew the sport intimately because when he joined the US Army he took it up and had an undefeated run of 17 fights. That ended when they brought in a pro boxer to his 18th fight. The fighter broke Rod Serling's nose and... After that, he decided to hang up his gloves. But he was still a fan of the sport, and he once said that a good fighter is a piece of art. So it's no surprise that it's informed his own art ever since. One of his breakthrough pieces of television before The Twilight Zone was Requiem for a Heavyweight for the TV show Playhouse 90. This was a story that featured Jack Palance as an over-the-hill, washed-up fighter. So it is this kind of end of fighters' careers that many writers seem to latch onto and find fascinating. But Rod Serling also said, It's the contradiction inherent in the sport that I find fascinating. When you speak to ex-fighters, you find out they're a breed of soft-spoken gentlemen. They expend so much violence beating each other's brains out that they have no antagonisms left outside the ring, the serene people. So you could say that the boxer in the episode we'll be discussing tonight fits the bill in that respect. Burley Jackson is a fighter who has obviously seen better days. If he ever did reach the top of his game, he's certainly not there anymore, but you do get the impression that he just never quite made it. He lives in an apartment block and is friends with a woman and her son who also live in the same building. When we meet Bowley, he's preparing for one more fight. So let's see how he does in The Big Tall Wish. In this corner of the universe, a prize fighter named Bowley Jackson 183 pounds in an hour and a half away from a comeback at St. Nick's Arena. Mr. Bowley Jackson, who by the standards of his profession is an aging, over-the-hill relic of what was, and who now sees a reflection of a man who has left too many pieces of his youth in too many stadiums for too many years, before too many screaming people. 
Mr. Bowley Jackson, who might do well to look for some gentle magic in the hard-surfaced glass that stares back at him. First broadcast on the 8th of April 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by Ron Winston. Now, Ron Winston directed The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, and The Big Tall Wish is the second of his three Twilight Zone episodes, the third being Stop Over in a Quiet Town. Now, as I'm sure we've said in the Monsters episode, Winston was a regular television director. But looking down his resume, I think it's safe to say that The Twilight Zone is probably his most famous work. But, you know, when you're the man who directed The Monsters of Your Maple Street, that's no bad thing. So, And I think he did a good job on this episode too. Buck Houghton said of The Big Tall Wish and Ron Winston in The Twilight Zone Companion, it was sentimental and he was sentimental. He was very good at extracting sentiment without getting sugary about it. Very restrained. So we see our leading man, Bowley Jackson, played by Ivan Dixon, is, like I said, a fighter who is probably either a has-been or a never-will-be type of fighter. His best days are behind him and we're not really sure about whether those days were that good anyway. And the years have taken their toll on him and he seems to have had the spirit just knocked out of him. As Rod Serling said in the opening, he's left pieces of himself in too many stadiums for too many years. And I really like that opening narration, as is often the case with Rod Serling. He manages to tell us all we need to know about a person or a situation in just a few short lines, but he manages to do it in that uniquely poetic way of his. You know, a fighter don't need a scrapbook, Henry. And you wanna know what he's done, where he's fought? You read it in his face. He's got the whole story cut into his flesh. (laughs) St. Louis, 1949. Guy named Sailor Levitt, real fast boy. And this Memorial Stadium, Syracuse, New York, Italian boy. Fought like Henry Armstrong, all hands and arms, just like a windmill all over you. First time I ever got my nose broke twice in one fight. And then move south, Henry. Miami, Florida. Boy got me up against the ring post. He did this with his laces. Tired old man. Tired old man trying to catch a bus. And the bus is already gone. Left a couple of years ago. So the young boy is Henry Temple who lives in the same apartment building, and he's nothing but spirit, you know, he he idolises Bowley, he believes in Bowley more than Bowley believes in himself, and Henry lives with his mother, Frances Temple, 
who is played by Kim Hamilton. So in their family unit, there is quite obviously a, a hole there in the form of a father. It's quite obvious that Henry sees Bowley as that kind of male role model to look up to. So let's just pause for a moment to talk about our leading man, Ivan Dixon. He wasn't the one who was originally cast to play Bowley. Originally it was a boxer named Archie Moore, but apparently he couldn't quite deliver what was expected of him. It's a it's a role that really takes a lot of kind of... You, you've got to be able to deliver these Rod Serling-esque speeches and really wear that those years of regret and uh, pain very well. So I imagine if Archie Moore you know, hadn't acted. It was a big ask, so, you know, maybe it was best that they got Ivan Dixon in. But, just as an aside, after Archie Moore was beaten by Yvonne Jurel in 1961, he described the knockout as, man, I was in the twilight zone. Bully, you are going to catch a tiger tonight. I'm going to make a wish. I'm going to make a big, tall wish. And you ain't going to get hurt none either. You hear, Bowley? You've been hurt enough already. And you're my friend, Bowley. You're my good and close friend. So I think Dixon puts in a great performance here. He really sells that world-weary regret that Bowley Jackson is consumed with. And his interplay with the young actor, Stephen Perry, is great too. You know, there's a real affection there that doesn't seem fake or staged. Now the youngster Stephen Perry who played Henry would apparently leave acting and go on to have a fast food restaurant and I think in this episode he actually shows you know a, a real talent for acting. I think he doesn't have a long resume of acting jobs and that's probably to his credit he wasn't one of those very stagey child actors that you, you often see. He had a natural kind of uh, way about him Perhaps in some of the, you know, the, the more emotional scenes, he is a bit stretched, you know, where he's uh, talking to Bowley and crying and so on. But but still, you know, it's fine. Overall, I, I think he done a, a real great job. And like I say, had a real natural kind of uh, ability and chemistry with Ivan Dixon. And Ivan Dixon himself would return to the Twilight Zone in the episode I Am The Night, Colour Me Black. I don't recall that episode myself, so that's one for me to rediscover down the line. Now Dixon's probably best remembered for a long-running part in the comedy Hogan's Heroes. I can't really comment on that further, I haven't seen it. I think it was a show that was more popular in the US than it was in the UK. In his book, Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, Stuart Stanyard has included a short interview with Dixon and he makes some interesting comments. He said that The Twilight Zone was one of his two favourite shows at the time and then Stuart Stanyard puts this question to him. Stanyard says, Even the occasional television viewer can easily remember your role as a radio man in the unforgettable World War II sitcom Hogan's Heroes. Rod Sailing didn't care for this show all that much as he once mentioned I see nothing comical about Nazis. Any comments on this point of view? To which Dixon replies, Not really. Rod was one of the most creative people I ever met. 
if you didn't like Hogan's, so be it. I didn't like it much either. So there you go, you can't really uh, argue with that. Um, but it's good to know that far from becoming washed up himself, Dixon became a successful television director, but sadly he died of a brain hemorrhage in 2008. So our man, Bowley Jackson, goes to fight. And while he's there, one of the people involved in the business end of the sport asks him to take a dive. Bowley Jackson refuses, but in the aftermath he ends up breaking his hand. He goes into the ring and he fights. And obviously he's not doing so well, but this is where Henry makes his big, tall wish. I'm going to make a wish, Bowley. I'm going to make a wish nothing happens to you. So don't you be afraid, Bowley. Understand? Don't you be afraid. And reality kind of takes a shift where instead of Bowley Jackson being on the floor, he actually ends up as the victor and he wins the match. He goes home. He speaks to Henry, you know, but in doing so, he kind of starts to get the idea that maybe he didn't win that match and maybe it was something else that actually brought on that victory. But he's so kind of world-weary and defeated on an emotional level that he just can't believe it even in victory he can't believe that you know some sort of magic has taken place that's got him there and he can't just sit back and and accept what's happened he and it's this doubt and this uh, regret and this bitterness that destroys henry's own belief in the in the wish and the power of the wish and it actually undoes it and in the end it's Bowley jackson who loses the fight I thought I was lying there on my back being counted out, and everybody tells me that... Bully, I made the big wish then. I wish it was never knocked down. I just shut my eyes and I... I wish real hard. It was magic, Bully. We had to have magic then. Had to, Bully. Oh, nothing kids, left for us then. No magic? Had there to ain't make no a magic, wish. A wishing or nothing like that. You're too big to have nutsy thoughts like that. You're too big to believe in fairy tales. If you wish hard enough, Bully, it'll come true. If you wish hard enough, Somebody got to knock it out of you, don't they? Somebody got to take you by the way. hair and rub your face into the world till you get the taste and feel of the way things are, don't they? I really enjoy the, the episode as a whole. I think, it, you know, the fights are beautifully staged with the glass floor when Dixon goes down and so on. Like Buck Houghton said, it's not too... It's emotional without being schmaltzy, and I think that's in part due to the direction, but also in part due to uh, Dixon's delivery, which, like I say, I, th I think is really good. Thematically, it shares a lot of DNA with stories like Walking Distance, A Stop at Willoughby, you know, and the Night Gallery episode, The Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar. But in the same way that those stories all have a different kind of view on a similar situation or point in life that these uh, characters go through the big tall wish looks at it in its own way as well i don't think you have to be a boxer to reach a point in life where you look at what you're doing career-wise and think you've maybe taken the wrong path or that path hasn't really rewarded you in the way that you would hope in Bowley's case, I've got no doubt that he, he loved boxing and he loved the sport, but it's a path with a definite end, and if you're not where you need to be by the time you get to that end, then it's not a very good place to be at all. 
So it is a very thoughtful Twilight Zone episode, one that makes you perhaps reflect a little. A good story, fine cast, given fine performances, and it has a very kind of urban, kind of urban fairy tale kind of feel to it. So I, I think it's a, it's a great episode and one that I enjoy quite a bit. But there's one more thing that I think we need to talk about. Mr. Bowley Jackson, 183 pounds who left a second chance lying in a heap on a rosin-spattered canvas at St. Nick's Arena. Mr. Bowley Jackson, who shares the most common ailment of all men, the strange and perverse disinclination to believe in a miracle. The kind of miracle to come from the mind of a little boy, perhaps only to be found in the Twilight Zone. So there is, of course, one detail that you will notice has been omitted about my thoughts on the big tall wish. And I think the reason for that is, is quite simple. Rod Serling never alluded to it in his script or the story. And he created a story that stood on its own. And the message in that story stands alone too. The colour of the skin of the actors was immaterial to the success or failure of that story. So I've purposely kind of left that part of the discussion until now because I think, like I say, the story isn't based upon the fact that these are black actors. It's a story in its own right and should be judged as such. But at this time in history, it's still quite culturally important. So I thought I'd save a little discussion about that for afterwards. If we look at the time that we're in, it's 1960, and just five years earlier, Rosa Parks, a black woman, was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a bus. And at the time, there were actual laws in place to enforce racial segregation. Now Martin Luther King, who had been very active in his campaigns against segregation, was still three years away from making his famous speech where he said, Amongst other things, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And if we look at the entertainment industry, you know, Star Trek, a show that is often held as pushing the boundaries by having a black woman, Michelle Nichols, in the cast was still six years away. So this was a time when black people were being denied basic human rights, never mind being given equality as actors. So if we stay on the theme of the entertainment industry, uh, it was about this time that the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People was attacking the movie industry because they claimed they were being discriminatory in that actors from ethnic minorities weren't being represented as they should be in entertainment. Now Edward D. Warren, who was the president of the LA chapter of the NAACP, said they'll show a scene with a baseball crowd and you don't even see a single negro. This is ridiculous. You will see city street scenes and not a single negro. We're not arguing for negroes on this matter. We want treatment for Mexicans, Jews or any other group. So the fact that this show was made at that time is important and like I say the interesting thing is that race is never alluded to, there's no ham-fisted kind of 
were all made equal it was just like sailing gave these actors the space to tell a story and tell it well and i think this gesture by rod sailing is you know all the more powerful because he doesn't make an issue of the race he just lets them do their thing and again for that reason i thought it was important to save this discussion for later on because they deserve to have the episode stand or fall based on their performances and I'm happy to say that in my opinion it stands very well. So thinking of the time and what had gone before and what was still to come, Rod Serling said, television like its big sister the motion picture has been guilty of a sin of omission. Desperate for talent, hungry for the so-called new face, Constantly searching for a transfusion of new blood, it has overlooked a source of wondrous talent that resides under its nose. This is the Negro actor. So I very much like that he he's uh, he's made his point in this way, you know. And it kind of reminds me of another kind of passive yet positive action by George Romero when he made Night of the Living Dead. And he cast the actor Dwayne Johnson as the lead, and Johnson was a black man. And since then, it's been put to Romero over the years that in doing this, he was trying to make some sort of social comment. But his response has always been that he just cast the best actor for the job, which is as it should be. So this episode did carry some weight, and I think it, you know, sent some ripples because things moved in a a particular way after that. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, it states that a couple of weeks after the show was broadcast, the National Scholarship Service and Fund for Negro Students in New York sent Rod Sailing a letter praising the episode and asked if a donation could be made, and Rod Sailing donated $25 to the course. And a week later, the Committee to Salvage Talent for Negro Actors also made the same request, and Sailing also sent her a donation. And then in 1961, The Twilight Zone received the annual Unity Award for Outstanding Contributions to Better Race Relations. And then a couple of years later, CBS enacted a policy requesting television producers to incorporate a black actor in film television plays, even if the roles were as minor as background stand-ins and The Twilight Zone picked up this policy uh, during the program's final couple of seasons. So, not only is it a, a good Twilight Zone, but it's an important Twilight Zone, and it's one I enjoy quite a bit. So, from the big tall wish to something a little more light-hearted, might not be to everyone's taste, but if you if you like this kind of thing, then, you know, why not? Let's include this sort of stuff. Uh, our friend Andrew Driver in New Zealand sent me an email about uh, the Twilight Zone pinball machine. Now, you can actually get this on your tablet, iPad, that kind of thing, um, a recreation of it, if you like. Um, So Andrew sent me some facts and figures about the machine, which I will now relate to you. He says, pinball underwent a revival of sorts in the 90s as a result of the introduction of DMD displays the orange dots with small animations, as well as the normal score. Now one of the top designers, then and now, was Pat Lawler. He created Funhouse, Banzai Run, amongst others. And Pat had just released the Adams Family table, based on the new Raul Julia film, but taking inspiration from the original TV series too. 
Now the Adams Family had gone on to become the best-selling pinball table of all time, shifting 20,000 plus units, plus another 1,000 in a special edition release. Now after this, uh, Pat was given free reign on his next project, with no limit on bill of material and his pick of theme, and he chose the Twilight Zone. And the licenses were picked up because Rod Sailing's likeness had to be licensed separately from the Twilight Zone name. And what's been described as the most complicated pinball machine ever devised was then created. And apparently it's still the top rated table some 20 years later. But, says Andrew, there was an ironic, somewhat Twilight Zone-like twist. Although pinball fanatics loved it, it was blamed for the alienation of the more casual player, overwhelmed as they were by the sheer number of playfield toys and bells and whistles. So although it was a great seller, uh, many attribute pinball's decline and the eventual closure by WMS of their pinball division in 1999 to this loss of the casual player. And some park this directly at the Twilight Zone table's door. And Andrew says, in addition to adapting the theme music from the original TV show, the game's main background music is an interpretation of the 1982 hit Twilight Zone by Golden Earring, and Tim Kittrow provided the voice of Rod Serling. So there you go, little bit of fact and uh, information about the Twilight Zone pinball table for you. Thank you for that, Andrew. Much appreciated. Okay, before I go, a couple of thank yous. The usual iTunes thank yous. In the US, we have Slow Fade and Jello Bro, Wits Brain, and Rich VA23294, who have all provided positive reviews for the Twilight Zone podcast. So, thank you to you guys. Much appreciated. But there's also a, a couple of other people I'd like to thank. I mentioned in the last episode that there are other twilight zone podcasts out there which i think is a good thing because the show works on many levels you can go deep into the kind of philosophical aspects of it or you can merely comment on the stories and you can do this in a number of ways now a couple of guys who have been who've said some very nice things in the past about this show have have their own twilight zone podcast which takes a bit more of a, a light-hearted view of the Twilight Zone. Their names are John and Fred, and their podcast is called The Twilight Pwn, spelled P-W-N. Um, now, like I say, it's a bit more of a light-hearted look at the show. Still respectful, of course, and, you know, reverential, but they do it in a different way. It's the two guys, two funny guys, and, and they have a chat about each episode. So they're not going chronological like I do. I think that the way they choose the episodes they're going to talk about is more listener-led. I will admit I've not listened to too many episodes because when I come to a new episode of the Twilight Zone podcast, I, I like to go into it as fresh and unspoiled as possible because there's some of these that I haven't watched for years and there's still episodes that I haven't actually seen. So, so if their podcast is from an episode that I haven't covered yet, then I'll save that till later. But I have listened to some of the ones about the episodes, you know, I have covered and they're, they're a lot of fun. You know, like I say, still respectful of the source material, but having a bit more fun with it. So the reason I bring them up is because lately um, a chap called Craig, who has a blog called My Life in the Shadow of the Twilight Zone, uh, which again is a great blog. Now what Craig does, he goes to each 
uh, individual episode as well and gives his thoughts on it and so on. And what I tend to do is I, I don't like to go to it before I record an episode because because Craig makes a lot of sense when he talks about these episodes in his, his criticism, his evaluation and so on. And I like to sort of come to it with my own thoughts intact, if you know what I mean, because he is so dead on that I kind of think, well, you know what, he's made a good point there and he's actually right. So, I'll, But I like to go in as fresh as I can. So once I've put an episode out, I will then go to Craig's blog and have a look at it and give it a read and see what he thinks. So that's that's my own little bit of enjoyment. But he gave a rundown recently of the Twilight Zone podcasts mentioning my own which so thank you for that appreciate it Craig if you're listening uh, and also he had an interview with John and Fred of the Twilight Pone and they said some nice words about the Twilight Zone podcast so I really wanted to kind of give that back and say thank you to those guys John and Fred and Craig as well I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to mention the Twilight Zone podcast Okay, in the next show we will be talking about a nice place to visit. But what I will say is, you know, feedback and thoughts on the episodes are always appreciated. And if you want to send some thoughts in on that one, then you can email me at tom at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. In a couple of episodes time, I think maybe there's two or three to go yet. We're coming up to quite a landmark episode, I think, which is a stop at Willoughby. So it would be really good to get people's thoughts on that one. If you like that episode, if you don't like that episode, if you think it's overrated or, you know, if you love it as much as, you know, received wisdom says you should, then all these things are valid. So send us an email or an MP3 clip to go in the show and that'd be great because Stop at Willoughby for me, I think it is one of the landmarks and it's one that I really, I really do love. So it'd be good to kind of try and put something a bit special together for that one okay well that's enough for me i will see you next time